0: This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're very fortunate. We have Rob Amarine. He is a certified business intermediary with the FBB Group in Colorado Springs. Rob, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bob. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. Well, Rob, if you would, tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve.
1: Yeah, our firm actually was originally started in 1982 called the FBB, or actually First Business Brokers, and then we changed the name to the FBB Group. About five, six years ago or so, when we wanted to become a little bit more nuanced, people have a lot of questions about confidentiality and all that. So we wanted to make it more, less straightforward. And also we actually added the ability to do stock transactions at that time as well. Our founder, Ron Chernak, got a spinner license. So there's a little branding and name change at that point to the FBB group.
0: What is it that you guys do?
1: Great question. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you don't live in this world, you don't realize that a lot of small businesses transact through intermediaries like ours, where a seller needs to sell and we have buyers that come to our firm. It's a very niche industry, but it's very important to the economy, just being able to find buyers or sellers that are looking to transition their business. So it's one of those businesses where you just don't realize it touches a lot of different facets of a business from the legal side to the accounting side to the marketing. The operations, you can just imagine all the different things that we touch and see, but it's, it's vital to what uh, sellers need. Rarely do businesses sell without someone like us. It does happen. Some of the bigger businesses, but a lot of small businesses, which is the engine of the economy, this is where that value changes over.
0: For you, looking back over uh, the past few years, would you say that there's a fair quantity of businesses available to be sold? Or is there a shortage or how do you see this? There
1: are a lot coming on the market right now, more so than we've seen before since the recession. We're going Mm -hmm. through that cycle. No one knows when it's going to end. So there's a lot of them out there. There's also a lot of businesses that are just not ready to sell that are out there that are trying to sell. And they're very frustrated about one in 10 go right now to the market actually sell. When you use a firm like ours, that can increase to maybe three or four out of 10. So you increase your percentages by having a firm like ours involved.
0: Let's dig into that a little bit. So you've got the business owner that's listening to the show and he goes, well, I know what my company's worth. And when you find the nine out of 10 businesses that don't sell, what are the typical reasons you run across as to why they don't?
1: Unrealistic expectations. Most of the time, business owners have gotten their valuation from their accountant, and the accountant does a great job of doing accounting, but they're not selling businesses. So usually when they value a business, they may not have the latest information, Some accountants do a great job. Others don't. So the question is, is your accountant valuing your business at the market rate that is today and not of something maybe they heard or something in the past that they've kind of held to? And again, accountants don't sell businesses. We do. So we work a lot of accounts. We like accounts. They have a very important role in this process. But we always say, let's check your numbers with your accountant to what actually it's worth today. And if it's off, wouldn't you want to know that instead of waiting until it's time to actually sell?
0: I think about some of the information that's available to the business owner. Mm-hmm. And I think the business owners are typically in the business, not on the business. Right. And so when you're out there in the marketplace, where do your typical buyers come
1: from? Buyers are a dime a dozen. Buyers are out there. There's uh, estimates of over $1 trillion in cash on the sidelines right now, waiting to invest in small businesses, all the way up from your private equity groups down to your individual buyers. So there's a lot of cash out there right now. So we always say that buyers will come, but you need good businesses that are ready to sell. And there are businesses that are good, but they're just not ready to sell yet, especially for the price that maybe the owner wants for it, or they just need to be tweaked a little bit. There's some things we can help them do to actually get them ready to sell, and that may take two, three years to do, but they're, if they go out now, they're leaving money on the table.
0: In looking at them, we you walk through the door and the business owner says, I'm kind of in the mode, and you say, well... If you're not immediately in the mode to sell, what are the kinds of things that you would recommend to a business owner that might help them
1: achieve a higher sales price? Yeah, great question. So, buyers are numbers driven more and more. You've got buyers that are coming out of Ivy League schools that have the numbers figured out, they've got the multiples figured out, and the numbers help drive the conversation. Whereas before, if you had a good business that maybe was attractive, The numbers didn't have to really jive. They would just kind of get in and maybe look at the numbers later. Now the buyers are looking at the numbers because there's so many out there. The numbers have to match even for them to even inquire on the business. So it's important that the numbers match up to what the buyers are kind of looking for. So we help do that. Of course, we have to start with the financials. And we start with tax returns. Tax returns tell a lot about the business. Profit and loss can basically show one thing or another. But the tax returns are where the foundational part of that cash flow starts and where the banks and the lenders start as well. So we start there and build on top of that and use the profit and loss and balance sheets to help supplement that to really figure out what is the true cash flow of that business. Then we can start level setting the the numbers expectations going from there. And that usually drives more recommendations. What's going on with your costs of goods sold? What's going on with your balance sheet? Those things that buyers are trained to look at, we're going to look at the same way and kind of help you say, hey, we need to move these things around. We need to have your accountant do these things and make sure that when you're actually ready to sell that these things are ready to go and you're not having to backtrack.
0: What I've run across and have heard is that there are some of the things that are sort of obvious, EBITDA which or EBITDA or whatever, and I don't think everybody knows what that is, so if you would.
1: EBITDA? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's actually a term that most people know, and it's basically looking at their earnings, minus interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. So that's what you get your EBITDA from. A lot of the businesses, though, aren't priced on EBITDA. They're actually, if it's under a million dollars of cash flow, we use a term called seller discretionary earnings, which includes the owner's salary. EBITDA usually doesn't include the owner's salaries and ad back, So there's a different there. Now, you can back into multiples one way or the other. You could do a multiple on SDE for a business over a million dollars. SDE. SDE, that's seller discretionary earnings. That's a similar term to EBITDA, right? So multiples, depending on where you're I had a, a client that came to us that was looking at we had an SDE calculation. He was talking EBITDA multiples. So we had to kind of change our approach on the financials to say, okay, let's talk EBITDA because we want to talk their language versus SDE, which is more of those businesses are under a million dollars in cash flow. So multiples are out there, just kind of depending on what term you're using. And you got to be careful. You could be talking about the wrong term and the wrong multiple, which could be confusing.
0: In looking at for a lot of the business owners, there's some of the obvious things that buyers look for, mm-hmm. you know, revenue and whatever. What are some of the things that a business owner may have a very successful business, but they don't see that as risk, such as concentration of customer base? Yeah,
1: customer. I was talking to a client recently and found out that one of their customers is 80% of their revenue. So now what do you do with that? How do you determine a multiple? Now, he's a very profitable business. But the question for him is, you know, he doesn't want to sell now, though the question now is, do I try to drive up revenue and get more clients to push that percentage down? Or do I try to basically see if I can find another way to maybe split up that contract or whatever, not make it such a high risk for a potential buyer? So those things really do factor. And so your multiple, of course, will go down if your customer concentration is high. Anything over 15, 20%, buyers are going to go, Hey, this is significant. If you can keep it under 15%, you're pretty safe from my experience. That most or many
0: business owners don't know the broad range of sale or selling options. Mm-hmm. Typically, right. going, I'm kind of cash out and I'm going to go fishing or golfing. Right. And when you're looking across your experience, how frequent is an all cash deal?
1: Well, we pride ourselves on getting all cash for our clients. The last two deals I've done have been all cash, mm-hmm. uh, which has been great because seller carries. Now, with the new SBA rules that came out January 1. The buyer equity required dropped from 25% down to 10%. Now, a lot of banks are going still higher than that, maybe 15% or so. But that kind of made up the difference of what we're seeing, some of this 10 15% seller carries that would come with SBA loans. That's pretty much gone away. We haven't done a deal this year that has gone through SBA or even through, you know, private financing where a seller carry was really a big part of it. So now that I think the SBA has kind of made those changes to help bring that in so they're financing it instead of the seller, that gives the sellers a little bit more money in their pocket up front versus having a two, three-year standby where they have to wait a couple of years to start getting paid on their seller carry. So it's working out pretty well.
0: I think about the nature of our discussions so far. And hmm. I think about the business owner that's going, I think I'll just sell next week. What's the proper time for a business owner to start working with you guys if he's thinking about or she's thinking about selling?
1: Yeah. And that question comes up quite a bit. And people don't realize that even a year or two out is probably too late. I mean, three to five years is what we like to see because that gives you enough time to really get the business to where you want it to be. And you have enough runway there to make the changes. Again, we know that that's the ideal scenario, right? And things don't happen that way. And events happen, life happens. So we like to see that. Now, We can do some retroactive work sometimes with your accountants and kind of move things around a little bit to help you get the business ready to sell. But what we're trying to prevent here, and which is why I volunteer with the SBDC and other organizations, to basically try to get in front of that. SBDC. SBDC, the Small Business Development Council. Okay. That are local here. Small business drives the economy. They're a government arm of SBA. There's a bunch of volunteers there that are trying to help these businesses before it's kind of too late when things are already in a place where it's just hard to change where they're at. So that just getting out in front, doing education and webinars and seminars, we do quite a bit of those and just trying to get out in front of people. Because we know we'll get the calls when they're ready, when they're ready to actually sell. But sometimes that we would rather have talked to them earlier so we could help them out better.
0: Typically, when the business owner reaches out to you guys, what's the reason typically that they want to sell?
1: Right now, I have this baby boomer generation. There's a lot of burnout. Burnout happens at any age. I think it's just when the business owner has gotten the business to where they wanted to get it. I closed on a business last month where they had gotten the revenue to a million dollars. They were doing great cash flow off of that. And you could just tell they were done. Now they're in their mid-40s. So they're not retirement age. They were just ready to move on. And I agreed with them. I think you've gotten the business to where it needs to go. Now it's someone else who needs to come on and take it over and go to the next level.
0: If I was to talk to the past business owners that have engaged you guys to help them out, Mm-hmm. what do you think they would say is your chief value add to the process?
1: It's a good question. I think depending on how the transaction goes and how much, what they're having to do in the transition, the transition is that critical point where you close on the deal. Everybody's looking forward to get a, a new owner. The other owners are maybe retiring and moving on, but now you've got employees. Now you got the transition piece. And there's a lot of stuff that can go on there in that. So it's really us not only just getting them to that finish line, which is an important part, but also, what happens after the finish line and what happens to that business. Because we know if that business doesn't do well, and just because someone could write a check for it and buy the business, if that business isn't set up to do well, that's not going to help anybody. you got a legacy of those people that are selling and the fact that their employees are being taken care of. A couple of years later, say, hey, that was a great deal. Your business is still going well. And the fact that that drives the economy as well. I mean, we don't want to set up businesses to fail. So we do everything we can to help in that transition. And then, of course, we make clients out of buyers, right? They come to buy. And that's something that's been happening here in this firm. And I've seen it firsthand where buyers of ours years ago then become sellers because they knew how important the process was and our involvement in it.
0: In the worst case scenario, that's where you have those quantity of businesses that come to market and don't sell. Mm-hmm. And if you're that business owner sitting out there and going like, well, I'm just going to... He attempts or she attempts to do it by himself. It doesn't work out. What typically is the fate of that business that doesn't sell?
1: Well, there's a lot of buyers out there that come to our firms, but they also go direct to clients and they try to get them to kind of come off and start working. I was talking to a lady yesterday, has a great business. I think it will sell very well, but she got pretty involved with a possible acquirer and they just kind of milked the information out. And we always say that if you're working with one buyer, they're in the driver's seat. If you work with multiple buyers, you're in the driver's seat, right? So we try to help people understand. And of course, when you've got some emotion involved and you're just done and you've got this person knocking on the door, you're like, well, who else is out there? Well, you really don't know. And you think this is kind of the only one. And you almost convince yourself that this is the best deal when reality is it may not be. We have sellers come to us and say, yeah, I've got so-and-so is looking at the business right now. We're like, okay, well, we'll add them into the mix. But one out of 100 actually buy that business to actually come in. So we've seen that happen over and over again. They're really not the buyer. It may be buyer number four or five that actually ends up going through the process buying.
0: I think that's why you have auctions. You have multiple buyers for a single yeah. deal. And so yeah. in looking
1: at a
0: business owner and he goes, you know what? That makes a lot of sense to me. I want to talk to you guys and said, it may be that I want to sell my business in three to five years. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. How much time on a monthly basis do you think? getting the business ready would entail?
1: Not that much. And there's some very obvious things. And that's the thing. It's not about trying to say, okay, I'm going to give you 10 things that you never have thought about before. It's going to be eight out of 10 of them you probably thought about, but there's two things that you didn't think about. And you're going, oh, I didn't, they didn't even think about that way, right? A good example that they own real estate. How's their market rent, right? It's like, well, I'm not paying myself rent. Well, how do you think the new owner's going to look at that? And what is market rent? Well, I don't know. Okay, well, we have to look at that, and that drops the price of your business if you're not realizing that expense. And so they don't think about that way. And then we always like to provide people options. So if they have real estate and the business, is the real estate is selling the business better, and then having the real estate as a good retirement kind of revenue a good idea, or can we combine them and do both and get a good chunk of change over to you that you can then reinvest somewhere else versus being a landlord? And what's the best scenario there? How's that work together? So that's a lot of those come into play where we just want to. Give them the most options, and then help them kind of tweak that along the way as they're getting ready to sell. That's why I say three to five years, because you can make those adjustments. You can move the real estate into a separate LLC and have that set up. You can make go to your account and say, "Okay, we've been saving our taxes here in these areas, but I need to start reporting this to the bottom line because there's about a hundred thousand dollars in this business that I kind of up in this area here in expenses, but it's not profit. So the banks don't like that. So let's start changing that over so we show us profit." Pay the taxes on that, and then realize the three times multiple, four times multiple on that revenue. You know, hundred thousand turns into three hundred thousand. You now you pay just maybe a couple thousand dollars in taxes over the next two years, but that's a good return on the change in your investment and how you're reporting your numbers. If you're the business owner and you have what's effectively a lifestyle company,
0: you know, make mm-hmm. a good income and you get to do what you want, mm-hmm. and you have a number of things in there: the company car, the company airplane. And from the potential buyer's perspective, how do they view those types of items in a company?
1: Well, I think most buyers expect it, right? Because that's the joy of owning your own business. You can do that and you have some latitude there on that. So Hmm. to a point, they expect it, but then sometimes you can get a little bit too much, right? Then you have the lender involved and the lender says, well, wait a second, what's the real cash flow here? And you start casting doubt on some of the financials. So we try to shore that up and just basically say, okay, these are the real ones. But when you start adding your ten person family cell phone into the mix, right? When you got friends and family involved and all these Mm -hmm. other things, you kind of go, well, can we make those adjustments now and kind of move that out? That looks a little bit better. In cleaner financials, buyers like those, right? So when you've moved those things out and you can even show it to say, okay, we went to go sell our business. We started thinking about this two years ago. So you can see we moved these out and we started showing those as actual discretionary earnings. So they're separated out. Then when you go to the appraisal with the bank loan and everything else, they say, okay, that's easy to see versus having it all wrapped up here and it's nebulous. And what what is the real detail here? So
0: for that business owners going like, you know what, I just had somebody call me on the phone and they are interested. I have an unsolicited offer Mm -hmm. for my business. What advice would you offer to them if that happens to them today?
1: I would say get a valuation on your business. Soon as possible, by someone other than your accountant, someone who sells businesses. Now, there are appraisers out there. Those are usually used by banks, and those are going to run you ten, fifteen thousand dollars 15000 which does it really make sense to spend that every time someone knocks on your door? I don't think it and does. And that
0: appraisal is based on a lending criteria.
1: Yeah, typically they'll write a 20, 30 page report, and they're great. They show you a lot about the business, but it's overkill for what you really need. You just need a kind of a range of value of what this was my business really worth today. As that benchmark. And if you say you do that every year or two, then you can kind of just start to see the trend a little bit more. So that's what I would recommend to say, get a business valuation from a firm like ours, where you're basically able to say, okay, I think my business is worth this. Then you can really say, is this a good deal or not? And a lot of times we'll get approached by sellers and say, hey, is this really a good deal or not? And if it is, can you help us negotiate? There's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that versus trying to go to market and finding other buyers. Maybe it is the buyer that you want to use. I have a client right now that's doing that and they're looking at a multi-million dollar offer, but they're kind of saying, hey, can you help us negotiate with this one possible acquirer and that that doesn't go, maybe we go to market. Mm-hmm. So there's ways to figure that out to make sure you're represented. A couple of years ago, I kind of put together a kind of a graphic on this idea of a business. It's not a linear process, right? There's so many different starts and stops and everything. And it's more of a maze. You're kind of going through it. And the whole thing on this was to say there's a lot of dead ends in selling your business. And you really shouldn't go out alone. If you understand good business, you understand that you need to be running your business while you're doing this and making sure you keep your eye on the ball. Having someone that is your advocate, I always say you want to pay people for what they're good at. If you're good at running your business, you're probably not good at selling your business. You're probably a good salesperson because you can sell that and that's going to come into the process. I mean, buyers want to see you're excited about it. This is your baby and everything else. But why not have someone there to represent you and then get the best possible And watch out for those pitfalls as well, basically watching your back.
0: So I'm the business owner. We've been talking for an appropriate period of time. So I've checked all the boxes and got the balance sheet sorted out Mm -hmm. and whatnot and go, all right, let's take it to market. Yeah. What should I expect you guys to do at that point and until closing day? Walk me through kind of the process.
1: Yeah. Basically, we vet our businesses. It takes us sometimes 30 days or more when someone actually signs one of our engagement agreements and we decide on a price and we say, okay, this is our go-get. If you're the business owner, we agree that we can get this price where there's a high probability we can get this price and there's a high probability you're going to accept that price. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if we're off there, we may say, hey, now is not a good time or maybe we're not a good fit, right? We'll have that conversation up front. Once we get past that and we get into an engagement agreement, we go for a year long typically because average time to sell a business right now is nine to 10 months. Okay. So it takes time. And then the bigger business takes longer. Smaller the business, those could go a little bit quicker sometimes. So what we do is we actually develop our businesses and we put our buyer cap on and we put together a marketing package that basically gets, looks at every aspect of your business and looks at the marketing, the day in life of the owner, the customers and the different contracts, things like that, that every buyer would want to look at, at least on their first brush, and say, okay, I feel like I understand this business now versus giving them just a little bit of a teaser and a little bit more, a little bit more, and spoon feeding them through the process where they get everything. And our buyers, I hear this constantly almost pretty much every week, our buyers say, I've looked at a lot of different businesses and the package you put together is one of the best I've seen. We get that constantly. So we pride ourselves in that because we're answering all the questions and we don't want to waste time with these buyers because they're smart.
0: Will that buyer know who that business is? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, as soon as they sign confidentiality. Okay, so there's... Yeah, they've got... And and we like to talk to all of our buyers. Example, I've got a fitness center right now that we got a buyer. It's a Colorado buyer and everything else. And so he had to fill out the confidentiality agreement. He also is filling out the profile, the purchaser profile. Now, it sounds like that he could afford this business. You know, and this is a multi million dollar deal. So at this point, we're sharing the information about who the business is, but we're not giving the full package, all the financials yet until we understand that he's got the ability to actually buy the business. Now, we can't guarantee that, but after talking with someone so often, you kind of figure out, and this guy was looking at other businesses before in this range, and we're just making sure that, hey, this is someone that we're not going to waste our time with, and they could actually have the ability to do it. The fact that he had talked to lenders already and had talked to some SBA lenders on deals similar to this size is always a good indication.
0: If you were to look back over the quantity of deals and businesses that sold, the chief factor on the ones that sold somewhere close to asking price and the chief factor of the ones that didn't sell. What would be those if there's one factor? What are those
1: factors? Good financials, bottom line. You have clean financials, they'll sell for more. Do they need audited? Or what's... No, no. Audited is get into more investment banking. Compiled is best from that standpoint where an accountant looks at it. And if they're filing the tax returns, that always helps as well. Reviewed is even better. But between compiled and reviewed is what we see. Audited is a little bit more expensive and for bigger businesses that are selling for tens of millions of dollars that area, which we have done those as well. So we've seen the audit, but most of the time it's reviewed and compiled.
0: Okay. And the chief reason they don't sell? A lot That's of reasons. Still-
1: yeah, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> uh, Even more so than that, it's just more things happen in the business, right? Mm-hmm. So they come to us and say, hey, here's everything. And then six months later, things change, right? Mm-hmm. So the asking price that they want, they had to back off of because it's something it, the numbers are down. So of course people say, well, how do you account for the numbers being down? Well, you account for the same way the r- numbers are going up. If they're going up, then the multiples higher. If they're going down, then you got to be fair on the other side too. And you never want—I always say—if you're cresting and you're coming down, that's not the best time to sell if you don't have to. You want to basically be on an upstroke of those financials to get your best multiple. So if we run it six months or a year, and then those things start to fall a little bit, then we have to adjust. So we'll actually go and make changes to the price and those type of things, and that's kind of a moving target. But the reality is, the market helps set that. So you get a lot of feedback from the market when they're coming in and saying, "We think our business is worth this." And you've got five different offers, and they're saying it's this. Then you know, yeah, the business is worth what somebody will pay for it, right? Yes, exactly. So we try to bridge that gap. We want to maximize that as much as possible. But there's only so far you can go, which is why getting a good go-to-market price is so important. If the gap is too big, then we can't get there. But if our gap is pretty small, then there's some room there and that's where negotiation comes in. And that, that more and pays for our fees and everything else because we're able to really maximize that and even pull a lender in and say, hey, here's a lender for this buyer. A lot of buyers are first-time buyers. So they're looking at this and going, okay, I really like this business, so help me out. So we'll help them out.
0: You mentioned fees. What should a potential seller expect in the fee world?
1: That's kind of depends on the size of business, right? Okay. So if you're looking at a million-dollar sale price in a business, I'd say That's 10 to 12% from that standpoint. If you look up higher, then of course it goes down. But that's typical.
0: Yeah. From
1: all that I've read and understood,
0: I mean, that's fairly normal in the marketplace. Yeah. And the thing I think about is how long does it take to get to market? And it's a long time. There's a lot of work involved. Sure. The thing I didn't touch on and I think is important is the emotional attachment. If the potential buyer says, I don't like fill in the blank and the owner goes, you're talking about one of my kids which is right. his business. Right. It's his
1: baby. Yeah. And, and don't call my baby ugly. Uh, right.
0: And I think about the detachment capability of somebody else working in that space. Yeah.
1: That's a hard reality. Selling a business and buying a business, but more selling a business is a single, probably biggest financial and emotional event an owner will go through. So it's hard on. Uh, I've seen so. numbers, 80 to 90% of their net worth is tied up in their business. Sure. Oh, yeah. Before
0: I forget, for the listener says, I need to talk to you. Rob, what's the best way for them to reach you
1: on social media, et cetera? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. That's a good place to see more about my profile. And then, of course, fbb.com is our website. That's an easy way. And then our number here, seven one nine six three five nine thousand, is our direct line here. And again, we've got a team here. This is a team sport. Right now, we have five intermediaries and two office admin. We just added another marketing person. and We're actually looking to hire and grow. Probably by, by another two or three people in the next year or two.
0: Growing your business. Yep, you gotta
1: yeah, You got to do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're going to shift gears here a little bit. And this is the part of the episode where I typically just ask you a series of questions. And so for you, a recent book perhaps that you've
1: been reading that's been influential on your thought process? I wouldn't say it was recent. I bought my first business in 2004. And I didn't set out to buy my first business. In fact, I was working for the business. And then the lady came to me and said, hey, I'm selling the business. And I'm going, oh, thanks a lot right? And I was like, and I just started working for and quit my other job because I figured I could work from home and have that flexibility. And then she called me about a week later and said, well, I think you could buy this business. And I said, I don't know. What are you talking about? I have no idea. So she actually had a broker. We don't like the term broker. We call ourselves intermediaries, but she had a broker that she said, well, I got my broker. She, he's going to call you. I said, okay. So I started talking about type of thing. And so he kind of said, okay, there's a price we're asking or whatever. And I'm going, how in the world am I going to afford this? I mean, this is a six-figure, purchase. And I'm just going, no way, right? So then she came back and we negotiated a little bit and actually found a business partner that had some cash, not much. And we were able to put it together and kind of friends and family type of thing. And so I bought my first business and really had no clue what I was doing. But at the same time, I know I got a client list and I had to go find out who's going to pay the bills, right? So during this time, I read Michael Gruber's E-Myth. It just started out. So this is early 2000, right after the Bubble bust and everything else, and my background's technology, and it really made sense. I say I'm a recovering engineer because my mind is operational and it's process driven, but that that only goes so far. So I had to kind of look at that. But the E Myth really showed that you have to build your services and everything into productization of making sure something is scalable. That you build yourself out of the business, that you're not working in the business. And it's all based on you. So and I see that across the board now is one of the best ones that kind of give me that idea. And of course, you have to eat your own dog food there and try to build yourself out. So I got into software and tried to kind of build myself out more. And that was hard because small business, that, is, that was relationships that you're keeping. So it's hard to build yourself out. And someone who can build themselves out has really driven a lot of value in their business because that's something that someone can take now and go with it. But if it's really based on them, there's different business models out there. But if it's personality-centric, then it becomes a lot harder to sell. If it's process centric and customer centric, then it becomes something that becomes a lot easier to sell. And then the value goes up. You got the deal done. It's Monday morning of
0: your first week. What was going through your mind on Monday morning of the first week?
1: Where's the coffee at? <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. I mean, you have to learn that. And that's where mm-hmm. I can appreciate I can see the look on owners' faces. I've been there and where they're just worn out. And then they're going through the ups and downs of it all and everything else. And yeah, I raised money. I went through all that too. And it's a hard, hard slog through it. I was glad that when I had the opportunity to work here, I feel like I could help those individuals now after going through that and really appreciate that. And that was an opportunity that I didn't know was going to become available, but it did. And now I feel like I'm helping them out and really understanding where they're at, but also helping to try to remove that emotional component and really help them kind of get through that transition. Mm-hmm. And because it is a hard transition on them. And having someone in your corner that can really help you out and has been there, but understands that, hey, we got to keep going here and don't get sidetracked and don't get too emotional here, but there'll be time for that. Right. So looking back
0: over the years, either a failure at the time or an apparent failure, that perhaps helped you go up the next step on success. Is there one that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, I think you learn more through your failures. I really do, because success is... It's nice when it happens, but it's actually more through your failures. You go, wow, I didn't see that coming. That's a whole life thing. I think there's failures in business. There's failures in family life. There's all these other things that you have to say, okay, through my failures, I actually learned more than I would have had I been wildly successful in this one thing. And I see the guys that are wildly successful in some of the other things they've done. And you got to wonder, it's like, well, have they really learned? You don't know if they learn until they really fail. And you go, okay. Now, let's see, right? Can you so, repeat? Right. Can you, can, can yeah. you do it again? To, to your point, I mean, I've seen people be very successful in one endeavor where they've just hit it out of the park. And the next one, it doesn't even get off the ground. Mm-hmm. It's complete failure. And then it's like, well, what happened? I don't know. But it didn't work. Yeah. was their niche. Yeah.
0: Thinking about putting an ad on perhaps page one of the local Colorado Springs Business Journal, what would be your message to the business community if you could put an ad on page one?
1: Oh, wow or advice? Um, I would say for business owners, obviously, to say, run your business as if you're not going to sell it. Don't think, oh, I'm selling it and kind of pump the brakes and say, okay, well, I'm selling it now. So I'm just kind of laid back a little bit. And then a couple of years down the road, it's like, yeah, maybe I should sell it now. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have this drifting that's going on. I think the people that are really, they keep the gas on as they go through it. And even we tell them, it's like, look, even when you come to us and you're on the market, keep the gas on. It's not over til you get those The check. So that's an important thing. I think that's more of a doing good business, making sure that your numbers are good and making sure that it's something that will go beyond you, building yourself out. Going back to what I said earlier, instead of making it about you, make it about more than you of just the employees and the people that you're employing because they need something there. And if something were to happen to you, is your business going to continue or can it not continue? I had a client in here just recently, a great publishing business that they have is actually out of state this uh, woman's father died. And now the business, they're not sure what to do with it because it was all based on him. And so they know there's value there, but they're like, okay, what do we do? Build it back up again? What do we do here? It puts them in a very bad position. Don't hold on to it too long, right? I've heard
0: that if you're thinking about selling a business from a buyer's eyes, that's just a good way to run your business.
1: Exactly. Yep. Put your buyer cap on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you were going to buy this
1: business, yeah. And that's what we do. We put the buyer cap on at arm's length from our sellers to say, okay, let's really look at this from a buyer's perspective. And then you can kind of get some feedback there because it's hard to step away from your own business. Because of course, you have the vision, you have the insight, you have all these other things. And it's like, it's really easy. But to a buyer, they're going, hey, I don't know all that. I don't know everything you do because you've been running this for 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. And the relationships that are there too. Can you really pass on relationships? That's a hard thing to do. But there's ways that you can monetize that and put things in place to set up the next owner, whether it's a family member or an employee or someone else. How are we going to do it? Those processes and institutionalizing those things in the business really help them for the next
0: whoever's going to take over. Looking at allocation of your time or efforts, what do you think the time or initiative that you put in place has helped your company or your efforts most and why?
1: Yeah, that's our thing in this business. You have to look at a lot of different opportunities and really talk to a lot of people to kind of figure out which ones are worth spending time on and others. I boil down to, you know, if I can help them, great. That may be just a quick call or a quick meeting, you know, an hour meeting, and then that's it. Or it's an engagement where we're working together for two or three years. Just understanding how far I can go to help them. And at a certain point, you got to say, OK, I can't help you anymore. We all have limited time and availability, so we need to move on. But it's amazing how much if you just focus in and say, OK, Let me just talk with you and see where you're at and then go from there. And that seems to work pretty well. But then you go chase ones that are actually you think you can help and the ones you can't, you just let them go. I often think
0: that for the listener out there going, should I call or not call? My advice, and I think you would mirror, is the worst mistake you can make is by not reaching out. Yeah. Reach out, talk, have a cup of coffee.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Reach out and also realize that our job is to keep confidentiality. The internet out there, you know, a lot of people think someone's going to find out whatever else it is. We understand that the confidentiality is big. You got employees, you got customers, everything else. But as you said, the worst thing to do is just wait too long because that way you can at least have a conversation and kind of know where you're at and then realize that that confidentiality is every business owner has to deal with. You know, well, you're, you're know. not, you're not alone.
0: And, you know, from the employee standpoint, if you're in your seventies, sneaking up on 80, the yeah. employees recognize you have an exit strategy. Right. One way or another.
1: Right. Right just <laughs> yeah which which one are you gonna, yeah. uh, and, and that goes to hold on too long i mean things are good right now mm-hmm. right and so a lot that we're seeing a lot of businesses like oh well, maybe next year that type of thing and we understand that but at a certain time how long is too long and i can see that in people i mean i've been working with some of these clients for two or three years and they've been talking about retirement and they've been talking about moving on for whatever reason maybe their spouse or whatever is just not on board yet and of course they want to but they don't want to and everything else. And I say. You're taking a risk here because if something were to happen with you or them because of health or whatever, then what do you have?
0: You can't run fast enough on the other side.
1: Right. Exactly. Once you pass a peak, yeah, better selling, approaching the peak yeah, than trying to time the peak. Exactly. And then we're seeing this M&A cycle right now. I mean, we're peaking and we've been peaking for a while. So where is the summit? No one knows, but is it the next year or two? And I think we'll see minor corrections. Through the next couple of years, and I think we're seeing that even now. But at the same time, you've got the economy and the market doing this, but you also got your individual piece of it that needs to be addressed. That's when it's really hard. When you've been talking, to them and then you get the call and says something's happened, and now the spouse says, "Okay, was it worth now? Yeah, Can you sell and, next week?" Right, right. And you go, "Oh, if you just come to us a year ago, that would have set you up. You would have had much more to work with. You can put that in the state. It would have been a lot better." But they just held too long. If I was to talk
0: to folks that know you well, what's the most unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you with your business?
1: I guess I'm kind of a jack of all trades, kind of worked in different areas or whatever. I really enjoy what I'm doing now, but I get bored easy. So, So that's why I like the constant change and things like that through all this. That's probably the main thing I think people would say is that there's a lot of different things that I could do. But finding something you enjoy where you feel direct connect with people that you're helping is, I think, important. So you can see that tangible evidence of what you do every day. You put me in a cubicle. I was at Lockheed Martin working in a cubicle on this those little program or whatever that was a model that you couldn't get me out of there quicker. I stayed there for a while, thought I could make it work, but I just didn't like the cubicle. Either. But, of course, you know, I'm an engineer by training, so how does that work, right? Well, you know, we'll
0: make allowances for the engineer Yeah. Side of the house. I have engineers in my family. Oh, yeah. For you over the past few years, what belief or protocol have you put in place, do you think, that's helped you the most?
1: I think just giving everybody a shot, not uh, making any assumptions too much on where people are at, just really finding out what really is they're doing. And then really looking at what's in their best interest to be able to kind of switch it around and say, okay, if I was them, what would I want to be doing? And is what's in their best interest, not necessarily what's in mine because this is a long term. You know, I was talking to a guy the other day and it's like, you know, you can be in this business and just try to turn and burn on transactions and try to get as many as possible. And then you're kind of leaving a wake of some relationships in the background that just would never work with you again. I think that's what's important in this business and how this business, this firm was founded that uh, either repeat clients and things like that, we're, we're not there to just turn on that. We need to get paid for what we do, but we also want to make it the right time. So we need to insert patience and understanding of where, okay, yeah, we like to close by the end of the year, but if we don't have a good buyer or this buyer it looks like they're going to not treat the employees well or not going to give us the price that we want. Even if we try to negotiate with them more, then we just need to move on and be patient in that process, knowing that when the time is right, it's right. Right thing to do is the right thing to do. Yep.
0: For you, with all the businesses that you've seen, what advice would you offer to that new business owner? That's walking through the door as the new business owner for the
1: first time. Build your business from the very beginning to sell it. Even if you're gonna keep it forever. Say you're gonna I'm gonna keep this and I'm just gonna run it till I'm done. I'm not gonna even retire, I'll just keep it going. Just build it to sell. And if you do, then you have options. If you wanna keep it, great. And typically doing, it'll run better if you sell it that way. Right. Spread clients, good books. Yep. You know. Yeah, build to sell it. So that's with that in mind. And sometimes when well, you buy a business if you're Starting from scratch, there's things you can put in place, processes and things like that that are best practices. If you buy a business, a lot of times it's fixing those things that the previous owner didn't have in place. So, But either way, that's building it to sell and really looking at from a buyer's perspective, at least periodically, is important.
0: For you, what do you think is the most common misconception about your role as a business intermediary?
1: That we don't do much, I guess. That's something that after being here is my fifth year coming into this. I realize there's so much that we do, but we're actually admittedly not good at showing that to our clients because there's so much activity, calls and emails, and we're looking down this with this buyer and talking with them and realizing, okay, that's not going to work out. Let's move over here, that type of thing. We're actually getting ready to move over to new software that's going to give our sellers a view into all the activity that we do. And if you're familiar with a GAN chart, all the different things that we do in the milestones to get from here to here, And you look at that, and once you really lay it out, you know people go, "Wow, that's I had no idea." That's like, well, you had no idea because we couldn't show you what that looked like. But there's a lot there, and so that's probably the biggest thing that people realize is that we kind of sit back and wait for the phone to ring. Sometimes the phone does ring, and that's when we get deals, buyers that come in because they'll inquire on something, and then we're off to the races, and we're working with lenders and all that. But uh, at the same time, there's a lot that goes into it, and just understanding all those nuances. And we need to do a better job as a firm to help show people that and show the activity behind what we do. Can
0: you imagine if at the end of the transaction, you presented a bill much like the insurance company does after an automobile wreck? There's three bolts, two fenders, one washer. Right. And all the stuff on this, what you've done, you kind of go, it would be a mountain.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we tried to avoid accidents, <laughs> but, uh, but that's exactly it. We have marketing reports that show views and clicks and inquiries and all these other things, a lot of notes. We have an internal database where we try to put all that into, but it's very hard to get that to the surface. So it's easy for someone to kind of see as a summary of things like you're talking about. So again, with this new software and things and my you know my background's in technology, so I'm like, you know, we've got to get to the point where we're showing this more because I think the more we can show it, the more people realize and they realize if they've had a bad experience with another firm that claims to do what we do, they can go, okay, you guys aren't doing what these guys are so that way, it's a direct connect. They can see it. It's tangible. And then there's accountability, you mm-hmm. know, in that. So, Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Looking back over the past few years, what or should you have said no to and why?
1: Well, my first couple of years of doing this, I said yes to things I shouldn't have. And I really got to the point where it was frustrating. You spend a lot of cycles. And of course, that's the thing, too. You do all this activity and then nothing comes of it. And you don't get a paycheck. You don't get a commission. And it's all for naught. And then that happens. Not to say that doesn't happen still sometimes where it just doesn't work out and then it's back to the drawing board. But saying no to businesses that just aren't ready yet or the motivation's not there, because we can't force someone to sell. They can come to us and say, I want to sell my business and we provide a great buyer and everything else. And they are go, yeah, I'm going to keep it or I'm going to sell it to an heir or someone like that. We can't prevent that. So it's just kind of understanding. What really motivates them and what they're trying to do? And does this make sense? And so we say no to a lot of businesses, or at least no, not now. And here are some things that maybe we need to work on in order to get you to where we think it would be. And just kind of testing that out. And We don't have the ability to know everything there, but we can get a lot better at doing that and saying, this is a good business to sell because we've gone through the process enough to say, you touch this process enough, you kind of see what works and what doesn't. And it just takes time. For you in the day-to-day
0: operation, Many folks have a personal habit or self-talk to keeps them going, gets them restarted, keeps them centered. Mm-hmm. What's yours?
1: Again, I go back to just always doing what's in the other's best interest, mm-hmm. and really focusing on that, and just putting myself in their situation, even if they don't agree with me. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's at the end of the day, it's not necessarily how they feel about it or whether or not. I mean, I've got to answer that and be accountable to that. To mm-hmm. say would I do that again, and make sure I'm not being led into what they want to do but what I believe as their advocate and as their representative of what I do believe is best for them
0: what they need and, to hear
1: yeah what they need to hear and not what they want to hear i would like to have it where what they want to hear is what they need to hear and i agree with them but being able to say no i don't agree with it and here's why and be able to back that up it's not just a feeling or a hunch it's just it's based on what i'm seeing that they can't see that's where I think accountability comes in, because you can't see the neon lights going off behind you, but someone else can see it. Typically, when you sell a business
0: for the owner in a guest, how many of those business owners have sold a business before? You have
1: some serial owners who kind of go through. Those are few and far between. Most of them, again, this is something they got into. They bought the business. This is something they have never done before. They came into the business. They started from scratch or they bought the business and then have gotten it to the point they're at. So they've never done it before. And I warn them. I said, it's going to be hard. There's going to be some emotional things that come in that you had no idea were there. I continually see that. So when you see it, you go, yeah, that was it. And then you remind them and say, hey, remember we talked about this? Well, you know, I think
0: about if you're tasked with getting a medical procedure of some kind, do you want the surgeon that's done it once. Right. Or The surgeon's going, well, I've done this hundreds of times. Right. Exactly. Or the old pilot and the young pilot. Give me the old pilot. Thank you very much. Right. I think about that. And I don't know that business owners necessarily frame it that way. Right. There's a notion that the expense is higher than the value add. Right. My thought process is there's a real gap between where the current value is and where the value of the company can be if it's prepared properly for sale.
1: Right. And so when you take the numbers of, say, 10% off the multi million dollar, 10%, if you can get increased the price of the business by 10%, you more than pay for our fees and everything else. And that, that's not too hard to do. Mm-hmm. When you look at financials and finding ways to move things around and say, okay, let's show the cash flow here, let's look at this way, you know. And so that's all part of what we do and it more in pace for yourself, plus the emotional toll, plus the probability of it's closing in the first place. Right. So all these other intangibles that go into it. Well, you know, and I think about
0: the distraction, if you're the business owner and you're trying to do it yourself Yeah, And you're taking the call and you're meeting this person, you're meeting that person, you're doing all that stuff. Now, granted, they'll still show up. Right. But for you guys.
1: Yeah. And unnecessarily exposing yourself and your mm -hmm. business and your employees. To who? Do you have those things in place to protect that? I mean, you can't guarantee that. But being a buffer between that helps to keep it at arm's length and then they respect the process versus just saying, okay, I'm going to meet with you for coffee. And then uh, the next day they show up at your office and you're going, what are you doing here? Well, I just thought I'd stop by.
0: Yeah. You guys have seen this movie many times. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, many yeah. times. Yep.
0: So for you, a quote that you use or one that you find meaningful?
1: I subscribe to the Golden Rule. Do unto others as you're doing it yourself. And so those things come into mind. And be prepared for what are you training for? What's your end game? What are you putting your hope in? Those type of things. So I don't think I have an actual quote. I should have one, but I, oh, I don't well, have a quote. That's
0: it. We're yeah. done. No. <laughs> If I was to talk to the colleagues that know you best, what would they say is either your superpower or what you do best?
1: I would say I'm uh, persistent and pretty consistent that what you see is what you get. I'm the same guy at work as I am at home. I don't try to compartmentalize that stuff. I tried to do that early on in my first business and it didn't work out so well. You can't run that. I've really backed off on, I don't believe it's working longer, but working smarter. And it's not about how many hours you put into something. It's like, okay, how do we be efficient in our day in what we do and make sure we're not getting too distracted or too narrow-minded in what you do, thinking that, oh, what I'm doing just has the utmost importance here. So I have to basically sacrifice this over here for my family or my kids, those things. And really just looking at it from an overall holistic standpoint versus my job's here and my family's here. and. My friends are over here, you know, that type of thing. I think you don't want to separate all that because then you end up being three or four different people. That's exhausting. You know, (laughs) hard to keep up. Yeah. hard to keep
0: up. Well, Rob, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to be on the podcast. And thanks so much for your time and insights.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it, Bob. Thanks for having
0: me. Absolutely.